we do uh, turn together in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of the chapter where Paul gives some general directions in light of the rising of Christ from the dead, kind of joining together with what we studied last week, but making it very practical now for service in the church. Picking up in chapter 15, verse 55 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the church in Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come, and when I come, Whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I should go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits." But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless again these inspired words to all that we are doing today as we gratefully have acknowledged the gift that you have given this congregation of Paul to us as a deacon to serve in the very compassion of Christ to us and among us and with us. We pray that we would now, from your word, gather some direction and encouragement that we might know how to do all things according to your holy will, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Compassion was in very short supply in the the ancient world. The pagan gods, for their part, were heartless, cold, and indifferent to human suffering, and their worshipers followed suit. How very different is the living and true God? It is, we read again and again, his delight to show mercy and to be the helper of all who call upon him. And nowhere do we find this more clearly demonstrated, of course, than in the life of Christ himself. We read again and again things like this, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched the leper. 
Well, Jesus was moved when he saw suffering. A woman bent down with infirmity drew his compassion as well as the blind Bartimaeus begging by the wayside. For the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, we sing, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The church, of course, must follow suit. We must likewise have and show Christ's compassion. And the Lord has therefore appointed in the church a perpetual office to help lead and direct God's people in our ministry. The church's form of government summarizes it with this sentence, the office of deacon is one of sympathy and service after the example of Christ. This office and this work are very necessary for us because left to ourselves, we are prone to focus on our own concerns. Are we not? That was the case in Corinth. To be honest, they had a lot to be concerned about. The Corinthian church was practically paralyzed with an exhausting number of controversies. And Paul spends the bulk of his letter straightening out problem after problem in the church. And now finally here in the last chapter, chapter 16, there's one more problem that needs to be straightened out. One more problem he has to address. The church has got to get organized and mobilized for a mercy ministry. Now, that's not always recognized as a problem, you know. It's easy to see there's a problem in the church where where there's perhaps controversy or heresy or hypocrisy. But the church is called not simply to be free from evils. We are called to be zealous for good works, to be fervent in brotherly love, always to be doing good as we have opportunity, and as Jesus put it to his own countrymen, bearing the fruit of God's kingdom. It's not enough for the church to be free from heresy and compromise. What is it doing? Is it fruitful? Is it abounding in the work of the Lord? Now, I've seen this problem too many times to count. Maybe you've seen it also. Have you ever been to a church like this? You go and, well, there's no heresy being taught. And the congregation is faithful in worship week after week. But there is something terribly wrong. The the church is cold. It's dying. Nobody's coming to believe in Christ. There is no fruitful ministry to be seen. You, You think this church is going to be gone in a generation. There's nothing happening And nothing can be a very serious problem. Where we started reading at the end of chapter 15, we are reminded that the church has a higher calling. And we have the Lord's own assurance that our labor is not in vain. Indeed, it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. We have a living Lord who has promised that our labor is not in vain. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting, O Hades? The sting of death is sin... The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, that is to say, because Christ lives and reigns over this world, because of his victory, that it's assured, we may be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, Paul Uh, This is where we will need your help. 
all this by way of introduction to your charge today. For as you begin this service in our congregation, in light of these things, I have a twofold charge to you. First, in the words of the passage here, to be committed to the work of the Lord. Committed to the work of the Lord. And what is the work of the Lord? Well, a great many things are mentioned in this passage all the way through chapter 16. He obviously takes up this matter first of contributing to the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem, um, helping our brothers in need, even in another land. That's the work of the Lord, clearly. Uh, Paul, even though this is a charge to you, I would like to mention to everyone that um, since our own congregation has not had very many needs of late and nothing else locally has presented itself as being particularly urgent, um, we have some room in our budget, and so we just sent a few thousand dollars to our church's missions board for the relief work of the saints in Turkey after their devastating earthquake. And how did that come to pass? I mentioned that because the deacons, our deacons in our congregation, became aware of this need, and they decided to check the room in our budget, and they made a request that we use some of the funds we had already set aside for mercy ministry in that way. And I'm very glad that we have deacons that are committed to this work, who, who have an eye looking for the need and who have a heart to help, and helping, in this case, our whole congregation to participate in what the Lord is doing around the world. If there weren't people doing that, we would not be. But helping those in need clearly is described here as the work of the Lord. You also notice that uh, in verse 10, Paul and Timothy's evangelistic and church planting labors are called the work of the Lord. Uh, 1610, he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Uh, I'll pause for a moment, by the way, and say to all that um, you know that we are helping a congregation in Williamsburg who'd approached us to get going. We're helping them to start. We had Rich Brown preach for us a few times, but for various reasons, it's not going to work out with Rich to be the church planter there. However, a number of other things have fallen into place or changed so that uh, Ken Bush will be able to do that work. He is uh, retiring from his other work, and uh, a couple other things have fallen into place, and Ken has not officially been called by our presbytery, so it's nothing official yet. We hope this will happen in June. Ken has been organizing this group and preaching to them every week since just before COVID, but the group in Williamsburg was very, very happy to hear that Ken is willing and able now to take this call as a church planter, and I'll be down there in two weeks to meet with the group again. This congregation is uh, growing, and they are very encouraged. We've been able to help them, to help oversee the work, to help them with finances and other things. And I am thankful to all those who are joining together in this work of the Lord of church planting. All of us have different callings and gifts and roles to play in this work, but such a large undertaking doesn't advance, especially in a, in a remote place, unless the congregation is committed to doing the work of the Lord, and we have leaders that are able to help us in it. Well, other things mentioned in our passage besides mercy ministry, evangelism, church planting. We read in verse 15 about this uh, household of Stephanus, the first fruits of Achaia, that they devoted themselves to the ministry or service 
of the saints, and that the church is to submit to such, and everyone who works and labors with us. Here's a man and a household devoting themselves to the service of and refreshing of others. And there's more in this chapter that I could draw out, but we might say in general that the work of the Lord is everything that may be done and must be done to advance the interests of Jesus Christ in the hearts and the lives of people in the church and outside, particularly here, evangelizing the lost, discipling new believers, building up the church, caring for the saints, and showing the mercy of Christ to the world. That is the work of the Lord. Now, I might not be uh, remiss in saying that uh, the social gospel movement of the late 19th century um, grew out of this in some ways. It came in response to the economic depression and poverty that was particularly in America, plaguing industrial cities. Those associated with the social gospel had some good goals in mind, we might say. They, they wanted to address not just some particular needs, but the societal and even the legal conditions that were contributing to their poverty. And those are good things for Christians to address, so don't get me wrong. But as the social gospel developed in the church, the language of justice began to displace mercy, as a description of how Christians should respond to poverty. They sought then to use the technologies of power and social policy so that the church might change the established order. Their approach did not, though, connect to the gospel of the living Christ and the work of the Lord as practiced by the apostles themselves, the further it went on. And although many people were no doubt helped, the end result is they were not really helped. That is to say, even if some people were temporarily relieved, they were not reconciled to God and enfolded into a loving community of brethren that would henceforth care for them in Christ's love. This is the larger picture of what we are doing here, and this is called the work of the Lord. Not that those other things aren't good things for politicians to give themselves to, for Christian politicians to set their mind to. But by not having the church doing God's work in God's way, it, uh, it lost its effectiveness. Now, the Lord's work, Paul, must be done in the Lord's way. And so, I just say this in passing, Paul, we need to be committed here to the work of the Lord. But the second thing I'd like to point out to you from the passage, second and final thing, is that you need to be committed to the workers of the Lord. The workers of the Lord. And who is it that's supposed to be diligent in the work of the Lord? Well, it says that we all are. My beloved brethren, always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Now, clearly, some people have to organize this work. Who has taken the lead in organizing this collection? For the saints in Jerusalem, the apostle himself. It's certainly not beneath the dignity of his apostolic office to remember the poor, the very thing he was eager to do. He says elsewhere uh, that uh, he had undertaken this very willingly, but you notice that even though he is taking the initiative to organize this collection, by these instructions, he's getting the whole church involved. 
He wants them all to be participating in the work of the Lord. In fact, it seems from verses 1 and 5 of chapter 16 that all the Gentile congregations that he's been working at, where he served, he wants them all to join him in this opportunity for good work. He wants all God's people to participate, and he even wants them to choose some leaders so that they can take this gift personally to Jerusalem. The Jewish brethren in Jerusalem were suffering greatly, uh, not only from the famine that had come, but also they'd been expelled from the synagogues and perhaps even from their families and homes as well. For the sake of Christ, they were suffering great poverty. Paul wants them to have this, this, this sight of a large delegation of generous Gentile Christians personally bringing them relief and lovingly encouraging them in Christ's love. This is, this is his vision for binding the whole church together in this good work. It's a great plan. I'm calling attention now to the apostle's role, Paul. He's not doing all the work himself. He, he's, he, he knows this need in Jerusalem that the other churches don't know about. And he's got this vision of, of how such a good work might be greatly accomplished to the glory of God. And he's committed to getting everyone in the churches involved and even raising up new leaders to make sure this work is brought to completion in a very wonderful way. So this is the apostolic model and practice which they committed to the church's deacons. That those who have some eye for this work, who have some vision for what can be done, might get everyone involved and even raise up new leaders for the calling. One of the most striking characteristics of the early church is that we find Christians caring for one another as a family, providing for one another's needs, joining together in the work of the Lord. It wasn't something that they had to grow into right from the beginning. It's part of who the church is. The apostles, for their part, oversaw and organized the work until it simply got too much for them and then people were slipping through the cracks. They had to make sure that it was being done, so they laid, the apostles laid their hands on the first deacons in Acts chapter 6, so that nothing would escape the church's notice again. This is the work that you will now be carrying out, this apostolic work that you are called to do, starting today, brother. So note the apostolic practice. Note in this letter how the apostle is committed to seeing a need, to communicating the need to the church, to getting everyone involved in the good work, to a very practical plan, to raising up certain members, to lead it, and getting the whole congregation to participate in it. The apostle is making it very practical, giving them specific instructions how to lay aside every week to take part in this ministry in a way that won't be too difficult for, or burdensome for them. Well, we at Redeemer Church, Paul, have been given gifts, each one of us, and we have a desire to serve. Left to ourselves, we, we tend to focus on ourselves too much. And you, Paul, um, as you are committed to the work of the Lord, as I know, point one, I ask you also to be committed to us, the workers of the Lord, point two, that we also might have the privilege of sharing in this good work of Christ's practical compassion. 
Be committed to the work of the Lord and be committed to the workers of the Lord because we need you. In conclusion, it's our calling as a congregation not only to be faithful to God's word, but especially to be be faithful to the gifts he has given in service. And it's no surprise that the Lord has appointed an office to make sure this is orchestrated well, the office that you have undertaken today. Without deacons, the whole church's individual and corporate commitment to ministry will weaken. It's, it's, it's happened in my life. It's happened throughout the ages of the church. You could think about the grinding poverty in medieval times as the church's office of deacon was temporarily lost. You could think of what happened when the diaconate was reborn wonderfully at the Reformation and especially in the Reformed churches in the way that those Protestant nations not only rose out of that grinding poverty but then undertook the care of refugees and in new and wonderful ways the destitute and the widows were provided for. And then it wasn't so many years later that the diaconate became more abundant again and the whole church began to suffer and it's gone back and forth in history. We all know, every one of us, we all know, don't we, how easy it is to lose sight of God's high and holy purposes. It's just so easy to slip into the habit of thinking of ourselves, of working for ourselves, of going about our own lives without a thought of others. Our lives seem so easily and naturally to turn inward. And whole churches face the same temptation. Churches can slip, unbeknownst to themselves, into a kind of self-maintenance mode. And how much, therefore, every congregation needs wise, godly, spiritual, faithful deacons committing, committed to helping us all to be what we want to be and to fulfill the ministry as workers of the Lord. And it's not just for our sakes. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The power and the credibility of the whole church's witness hinges on our keeping this commandment to love. By this will all men know. And so you see the practical importance of this. When our love fails, it's not just the church that suffers, the world suffers. And we are to do good to, to, do good to all men, especially those who believe. And therefore, Paul, I charge you to be committed to the work of the Lord, to be committed to the workers of the Lord, and help us faithfully to represent this love of Christ, not only to ourselves, but to the world. Let me pray once for you, and then I have a word for the congregation. Father in heaven, once again, we commit uh, Paul Martin to you, his service, his uh, his, uh, family's uh, also services, his uh, wife and uh, others in uh, loving support and encouragement, no doubt will have their their own role to play. We pray that in all of these things that uh, he would be blessed that we would be blessed in Christ and that we, we would see more and more of Christ in him for your name's sake. Amen.
Now briefly a word to you. The congregation, I have a charge also for you. In fact, I'd like to read just a little bit further into the chapter to have a few more verses before us, which I'll also make reference to, starting again back to verse 15. I urge you, brethren, you know the households of Stephanus, uh, that's the first fruits of Achaia, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such, and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. You see how practical this is. Dear congregation, I have three brief things to say to you in this charge. First, clearly we all must be abounding in the work of the Lord ourselves. We must always be abounding in the Lord's work ourselves. Right from the very beginning of the passage and all the way through, we are all, brethren, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not enough for us to be doing the work of the Lord. It's not enough for us to be abounding in the work of the Lord. The command is to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And as I said, the work of the Lord includes a thousand things, from spiritual encouragement to communicating love, to financial help, to prayer, to physical assistance, to speaking of Christ, to refreshing the saints. Paul's point is not to list all the possible ways we might devote ourselves, of course, but he's wanting to press home to every Christian how much we individually need involvement and commitment to the work of the Lord. It's clear from Paul's instructions to the church that we must all participate in a variety of ways. For instance, in verse 1, concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the church in Galatia, so you must do also. Uh, Paul's not making it optional, is he? We we must be abounding in the work of the Lord. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, That's a third-person imperative, which I've explained to you before. We don't have it in English, but it is a command. We could read it this way. Each one of you lay something aside. No one is excluded. A command for all to give as they're able, for we must be abounding in the work of the Lord ourselves. Doing it, verse 14, all in love. A church might be happy and content, having no heresy, No division, no scandal, good feelings among us. But they are not a faithful church unless they are all actively, energetically, intentionally, always giving themselves to the work of the Lord. Both individually and as a church together, we are called to be diligent workers and abounding at all times. We are to give all encouragement and help, therefore, to Paul, whose office it is to lead us in this. Point one. We must always be abounding in the Lord's work ourselves. But point two, we also must actively participate in the work of the Lord done by others. We must also actively participate in the work of the Lord done by others. Again, you see that throughout the passage. The apostle wants this congregation to do a number of other things, to uh, send him on his missionary journey. Verse 6 to send Timothy on his journey, 
verse 10, to choose men from among themselves to carry this offering to Jerusalem, verse 4. He wants them to respect those who are doing the work of the Lord and to continue in prayer for them and to acknowledge them. We must actively participate in the work of the Lord as it's done by others. Some of you will have heard the name William Still. He was a uh, minister for many years in Aberdeen, Scotland, in the, uh, in the Kirk, in the Church of Scotland there. Although his congregation never got above 400 members or so, one thing that was so remarkable about that congregation was the huge number of people who went out from that church to minister in a great variety of ways to the ends of the earth. Uh, missionaries, ministers, relief workers, all, all sorts of things. Part of it probably was their three-hour prayer meetings that they had on every Saturday night. Uh, totally full, very energetic. There was such a spirit of participation in the work around the world in those meetings. And part of the reason that so many went out from that congregation, surely, was that they all had such a knowledge of and deep interest in the various ministries and missions of the Lord's work around the world. They were supporting it. They were praying for it. They were invested in it, its successes, its setbacks, the opportunities, the challenges, the pressing needs. They, they knew about it all. They were deeply committed. Three-hour prayer meeting every Saturday night, full. It was only natural then that some of them should become the next generations of workers themselves. In prayer, in support, in many ways, we have to have a sense that we are actively participating in the work of the Lord that is done by others. This is where deacons are very helpful. They, they act as a kind of liaison between this congregation and those workers. We can all, as Paul says, be those who refresh the spirits of those who come and who labor among us, who perhaps visit or have other opportunity. One author comments, you know, that most of us uh, know people that are refreshing to be with. They possess the ability to lift our spirits, no matter how gloomy and depressed they find us. And we know those who do the opposite, who drag us down with them. And we should ask ourselves, which one of these groups we belong to? Are we the refreshers or the depressors. Well, we can be those, we are called to be those who encourage others in doing the work. Uh, around the world, yes, but, but even right here, even our brother Paul, we are called to be the refreshers and encouragers and the, and the prayers, called not only to be faithful workers ourselves, but to carry the whole cause of God in our hearts to encourage its success in the world, to mourn its setbacks, to rejoice in its triumphs in each human life. And therefore, we are not only laborers ourselves, but we are actively participating in the work done by others, point two. And finally, from the passage, we must acknowledge those who are laboring in the work of the Lord. We are to be an appreciative and affectionate people. Verse 18 these workers, their families, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaeus, they deserve our affectionate respect and appreciation, acknowledge such men. Considering again how that congregation in Aberdeen, Scotland, blessed so many people, surely one more reason is that the, mission, the missionaries, the ministers who visited and others, 
They were so admired. They were so beloved by the congregation. Oh, we've prayed for you. Oh, we know you. Thank you so much for coming and for speaking at our conference or taking holiday up here. Um, the, The children growing up in the Aberdeen congregation grew up in a society that was esteeming those who abounded in the work of the Lord. They aspired to be such themselves. There are, frankly, so many reasons for discouragement in the Lord's work. And we need to commit ourselves to acknowledging such men, to lifting them up, to refreshing them in the Lord. These are my three commitments uh, for each one of us to make. My charge to each one of you is my conclusion. It's time for self-examination, brothers and sisters. How do we fare comparing ourselves to what is written here? How actively are we engaged in doing the work of the Lord ourselves? Always abounding? Witness, charity, discipleship, ministry, according to our gifts, what are we doing and how? And with what interest and activity are we supporting the work of others, prayer and financial and personal interest and engagement? And do they know how much such people mean to us and the church as a whole? Do we esteem them? Is it evident that we admire and love all those who are giving themselves to the work this way? As Paul Martin begins his work, these are to be our commitments to him in the Lord. In uh, conclusion to you all, there's this uh, passage in General Bradley's wartime memoir in which he describes a conversation that he one day had with General George Patton. Um, This is the G version of that conversation, right? Uh, They they were in Sicily. They were standing on a hillside surveying the... uh, the advance of Patton's great army across the, across the terrain, the men and materiel and the tanks, heavy guns, jeeps, trucks, soldiers as far as the eye could see. And Patton, Patton turned to Bradley and said, Brad, there is nothing in all of human endeavor that compares to war. Look at that. Where else could you ever see something so vast, so grand in scale, an entire army moving over the face of the ground? Patton just loved it for its scope. He was accused of loving war uh, because of the opportunity it provided for great endeavor, for the achievements of historic proportion. Well, I, I understand his enthusiasm, but brothers and sisters, Patton's war pales in comparison to the true great conflicts of the ages, the struggles in which we are all soldiers and servants of Jesus Christ himself. Patton's war raged for a few years and decided earthly and temporal things, but our war decides the fate of human beings and nations forever. Nothing in all the world truly is so vast in its scale, nothing so heroic in its proportion, nothing so truly welcoming of historic and everlasting achievement. And we, therefore, are charged by the Apostle in these military terms, did you notice? Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. The old translation, quit you like men, and let all that you do be done with love. Let us pray.
Our Father in heaven, we likewise wish to take our place in the conflict of the ages. We thank you for those faithful servants whom you have appointed to guide and direct our wartime activities. We pray for success in the work, and we pray that we would continue here ever so slowly, as we do all things in love, but nevertheless, really, standing fast, abounding in your work, may we continue to see in advance among us ourselves, among our congregation, among the community here where you have placed us. And yes, as we are given opportunity to participate, to rejoice in the achievements of historic proportion in the world, we long to be part of the work of the Lord in its vast scope and its victory. Death itself has already been swallowed up in victory. For the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But, O God, we give you thanks once more, for you have given us the victory in which we labor through Christ Jesus.